Good morning. This morning we're going to finish up Malachi. We're going to look at the last two chapters. This is a great book. The book of Malachi comes straight at us, right where we are. It's also a hard book. You know, we don't particularly like to be confronted with how we are acting. It's no fun. But Malachi is the surgeon. And we have cancer. Cancer is uh, operable, it's curable. What kind of surgeon would he be if he just said nothing? Let us die. And what kind of heartless, cruel doctor would uh, turn his back, let us die, just because he knew it would be hard for us to hear the diagnosis or that we didn't want to hear it? He or she would be incompetent, and irresponsible. Uh, several years ago, my mother was diagnosed with cancer on her arm. It was a melanoma, which is a serious form of cancer. But the doctor found it early. Uh, he told my parents it was hard. It was scary. My mom needed surgery. Uh, that interrupted her life. It was uh, unpleasant. But they cut the cancer out. And her arm was saved. And she lived. In fact, she's cured. I cannot imagine if that doctor had tried to spare her the trauma of of knowing or the discomfort of surgery and just let her die. See, we have a spiritual form of cancer, and God loves us enough to come and tell us the diagnosis. He loves us too much to just let us walk out of the office deceived and dying. See, that's uh, the message of this book. If you remember, the opening statement of this book was, God says, I love you. And then he expresses that love by coming after us and to telling us some things. But the message of this book is that the God of the universe loves you. He loves you enough to tell you your condition. Your future is important to him. Your uh, peace and life are important to him. The only place you can find life and peace is in relationship with him. And to find life and peace, that relationship has to be open and honest. You have to be willing to be honest with him. He will be honest with you. That's his nature. That's his love. As we look at these last two chapters of uh, Malachi, in Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible, this is just one chapter. There's no chapter four. Uh, It's just chapter three is a little longer. This makes actually a lot more sense than our English translations because of the way these last two chapters are organized. Well, what, what Malachi does is he gives us a prophecy of our Lord's coming. And he takes up some issues, two issues that he needs to talk with us about. And then he gives us another prophecy of our Lord's coming. These two prophecies kind of bracket the other issues. Well, what I would like to do in order to teach this is slightly reorganize it. I'd like to start by looking at the issues that uh, we need to think about. And then come back at the end and look at the prophecies. See how they fit in. See what they add to the whole message of this book. 
So this hopefully will make sense as we go. But I want to start with verse 6 of chapter 3. We'll come back to 1 through 5, but let's start with verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. God starts with some important theology. Lays out for us the doctrine of immutability. Now, uh, theologians love to give long names to fairly simple concepts, simple ideas. And all we're talking about here is the fact, the reality that God does not change. His character stays the same. Now, that doesn't mean that he always acts exactly the same. As if he were some machine or or some impersonal force that was... uh, Constrained by the laws of physics. See, the reality is, the fact is, that God rarely does the same thing the same way twice in our lives. He is a person. And so he relates to us personally. Who we are, where we are at at, at the time. But what doesn't change is his character, is his love, is his desire for an honest relationship with us. He will always do the loving thing. Because that's who he is. He is loving. He will will never act any other way. That you can count on. That you can take to the bank. But if you start trying to relate to him in some kind of mechanistic way where you plug in a principle and then God has to do something, you're in for a surprise. See, God loves you too much to let you play that game. He will frustrate your expectations until you come to Him and honestly talk with Him. See, that's what He wants. That personal relationship with you. He wants you to know Him personally. There are uh, three things in these verses that don't change. First, is God's faithfulness. He will not allow us to be destroyed, is what Malachi says, or what God says through Malachi. And we may go through um, horrible problems in life. We may experience unimaginable pain. But God does not abandon us. He is there with us and for us. He is faithful in the midst of those uh, hard times, those confusing times. He is working to, to draw us intimately to himself. If you remember, that's the context for all of this, is God's desire to become intimate with us, for us to know him. He loves us and wants a better relationship with us. That never changes. Another thing that never seems to change is our tendency to wander. As the songwriter put it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. See, God refers to us as descendants of Jacob. Jacob was a wanderer. He always seems to to mess it up. 
He always, he always seems to, to cause more problems because he tries to solve all of his situations and problems, leaving God out of the equation. See, throughout history, God's people kept doing this. You and I keep doing this, trying to solve all of our life's problems and leaving God out of the equation. We, we, we try to, to fix our marriages by force or, or, or by withholding ourselves in punishment. We, we try to get out of some financial problem by coming up with some scheme that just digs us in deeper. We try to meet our sexual needs by some, uh, some sexual compromise all the time, leaving God out of the equation, ignoring his instruction, his word. But fortunately, the other thing that doesn't change is that God doesn't just write us off. He doesn't just say, that was one too many times, you're out of here. You hurt me too many times, I'm not going to take you back. See, his love, in his love, he always takes us back. When we truly turn, He is always ready to forgive. He's always ready to rescue us when we truly repent. And that's His love. That's the expression of His love. He keeps taking us back over and over again. Again, that's the message of this book. God is there. Turn to Him. If you're feeling distant from God, realize who moved. Realize who it was that walked out, that abandoned the relationship. Realize that God is still waiting, wanting you to turn to Him. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He cannot be unfaithful because that is His character. He will always be reconciled to us if we will only turn to Him. Well, this uh, foundation, understanding this, realizing this is, a, is an essential foundation for us to face ourselves, face what we're doing. Because if we don't grasp this, uh, when, when God points out what we're doing and we see it, we run away. We say, God can't love me. Look at this. Look what I'm doing. Look how I've been. So we need to know That God's motive in telling us this is not to push us away. It's to draw us back in repentance and brokenness before Him. To have a better relationship with us. Now let's uh, take a look at what we're doing. At the end of verse 7. He says, But you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. God says, uh, return to me. And we say, how? God says, stop ripping me off. God says, we are ripping him off. 
And he gets specific. He says, we are not honoring him in the way we handle our money. Now, this starts getting close to home. Reminds me of a story I heard about three ministers who were discussing among themselves how they handled the church's money. First minister said, uh, well, I let God decide how the money should be divided. I draw a line on the ground, take the money in the offering plate, and I throw it up in the air. Whatever lands on the right side of the line, I use that for uh, my needs. Whatever lands on the left side is used for ministry. Second minister says, well, I draw a big circle on the ground. I throw all the money up in the air. Whatever lands in the circle is for my family and my needs. Whatever lands outside of the circle is for God's work. Third minister said, well, I do pretty much the same thing. I take the money, I throw it in the air. What God wants, he keeps, and I take the rest. (laughs) Actually, uh, (laughs) elders have a little bit better system here, but it's roughly the same. (laughs) Actually, you know, how we handle our personal finances, our personal money. This is a struggle for me as well. Something I've been thinking through a lot lately. I heard a story recently uh, about Gandhi that I liked. This woman brought her young son to Gandhi, asked him to tell the boy not to eat sweets. Gandhi said, okay, bring him back in three days and I'll tell him. Three days later, the woman came back. Gandhi looked at the boy and said, don't eat sweets. The woman looked at him and said, is that it? Why did I have to come back for this? Why didn't you just tell him this three days ago? Gandhi looked at her and said, Three days ago, I was still eating sweets. (laughs) You know, sometimes I I feel like Gandhi three days before. Here I am up here talking to you guys about something that I'm struggling to sort out. Something that I'm still in the midst of figuring out. Becky and I have been talking about this uh, for some time. Just neither of us really happy yet with how much we're giving. So we're working through these things, uh, re-examining this ourselves. But what does God say? God says... Test me in this. Try me. Let go of your money and see what I will do. You know, how we handle our money is really one of those places where the rubber meets the road. The issue here is do we trust God or do we trust money? God doesn't need our money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. But God wants us to trust Him, not money. He wants us to love Him, not money. And when we lose sight of this, it opens us up to every form of evil. Jesus said in Matthew 6, If you seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, all of these things, all of your material needs will be taken care of. Trust me and I will take care of you. Not only that, trust me and I will be freed To bless you. See, God is a giver. He loves to give. But sometimes our attitudes, our way of of looking at at finances, at money, inhibit His ability. To give more just would push us in the wrong direction. The more, (coughs) excuse me, the more that we have, the, the more preoccupied we become with money, or the stronger its hold on us, the more we cling to it for our security and our identity. And this is deadly. It's deadly to us uh, spiritually. And it's deadly to our relationships. 
What God wants is not our money. He wants us. Second Corinthians, Paul is talking about the Macedonian Christians who were very poor. This is what he says. He says, their extreme poverty overflowed into incredible generosity. They begged for the opportunity to help. They gave as much as they were able and then beyond their ability. Then Paul says what I think is the most significant thing he says about these guys. He says, first they gave themselves to the Lord and then they gave to us in keeping with God's will. They gave themselves to the Lord and then out of that they gave financially. This is the key. God wants you. He doesn't need your money. But how you use your money really is an indication of where your heart is. There's no way around that equation. See, the painful choice of choosing to give and then actually writing that check out and subtracting that amount from your balance forces you to answer the question, who do I trust? Do I trust God Or do I trust money? We can talk all we want about how much we love God, how much we trust Him. But if we are unwilling to take the risk to part with our money, we are deceiving ourselves. And God isn't into deception. Where your treasure is, that is where your heart is. Now, there are a couple of uh, important questions here. How do we do this? Uh, How much should we give? The terms that uh, that Malachi uses are tithes and offerings. The word tithe literally means a tenth part, 10%. And that was the standard in the Old Testament law. Each individual was to give 10% of everything they earned to the temple. And then offerings were over and above that in response to special needs or special opportunities to express gratitude to God. Now... Uh, it's been pointed out that this was the law and we are no longer under the law so that we are not tied to this mountain this amount and this is absolutely true but let me uh, add a couple other things here you see the 10% predates the law uh, Abraham, when he came to Salem and made his offering to God, to gave the, he gave 10% of everything he owned to Melchizedek. Jacob, when he made his vow at Bethel, gave 10% of what he had. So I, I honestly think 10% is a good rule of thumb. It's a good starting point. But for some, 10% it, it, on a regular basis is going to be unrealistic. 10% of a very small income may cut too deeply into a family's financial viability. Well, for others, the 90% that they have left over is more than enough to live on comfortably. And they need to consider a greater amount. Again, the amount doesn't matter. That's not the, the issue. What matters is the discipline of giving, the discipline of demonstrating to yourself and to God in substantial, real terms that you trust Him over money. Jesus was impressed with the faith of the widow. 
when all she gave was two cents. It wasn't the amount. It was the demonstration that she trusted God and wanted to give what she had. And that's what matters. That's what's important. 10% is a good starting point. But you and God need to talk about what he wants you to do. Remember, this is all in the context of an honest, open relationship with God. That's the point of it all. He wants to be part of this area of your life. The principle of giving regularly and then responding to special needs or opportunities to express gratitude, over and above that, those principles still apply. Now, where are we to give? Well, giving to this church is one essential area. The local church is is the basic unit in God's plan to uh, reach the the world. And as such, it is a priority. Quite honestly, there is a lot more that we could do here at Cole if we had more money. Now, from our perspective as leaders... We recognize that we have exactly what God, uh, what we need to do what God's calling us to do. And he will be faithful. But let me challenge you. God is, is going to do great things through this body. He's going to do great things through this church. And part of that will be through the money that you give here. And having said that, let me also... Uh, recognize that there are other needs, there are other opportunities, there are other worthy organizations and individuals that, that are meeting needs, that are advancing the kingdom. All of this is something you have to sit down with God, talk through with Him. See, He must be the Lord of this area of your life, and He'll decide where the resources go. He'll use them for His glory and distribute it. By using you, by letting you know how and where and how much he wants you to give. Now, uh, one of the reasons it's often so hard for us to talk about money as a church is because these things have been so used and abused to exploit people in American Christianity. I've heard passages like this used to uh, promote seed faith giving. What happens is a a preacher will get up and he'll say, if you give me $10 for God's work, God will give you 20. You give me 100, God will give you 200. You know, as if God was this instant teller machine. And, And if you play him right, you can get rich. Remember one time Brian Fisher told me that he sent a letter to one of these, uh, preachers once and said, uh, if you really believe what you're saying, send me all your money and God will double it for you. No surprise, he did not get a check back in the mail. You see, God does promise to bless. He loves to bless. He's a giver, but he resists our impersonal and presumptuous ways we try to relate to Him. He wants to relate to us honestly. He wants us to come to Him as our Father and talk to Him about what we need and to see Him provide for us. Now, He may provide for your need by blessing your business 
Or he may wipe your business out and show you his ability to meet your need through more dramatic means. Sometimes he leaves some of us in need so that the rest of us have the opportunity to demonstrate God's love, to pass God's generosity on to each other in the body. That's what we have the fellowship fund for. It is no shame when God chooses to meet your need through your brothers and sisters. That was part of his design. And if he wants to bless all of us that way, for you to resist and refuse is is vain, presumptuous pride. The bottom line is God will meet your need. And He'll do it in the context of an honest, loving relationship. In the process, He will show you Himself and draw you to Himself. And these promises of blessing are real. God loves to bless. But He loves you even more. And He wants the relationship with you to be honest To be open. He wants you to depend on Him. Not on your investments or even your job. So test Him on this. Money can't satisfy. He can. Stop ripping Him off. Give yourself to Him. And then give some reality to that by writing a check every week. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8 says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each person, person should give what they've decided in their heart to give, not reluctantly nor under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Amen. Okay, the next issue that he takes up with us starts in verse 13. He says, You have said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. And the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared who feared the Lord and honored his name. They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in that day I make up my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will see, again, the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Okay, God says that they were speaking harshly or arrogantly against him. See, they were saying, this stuff is all bunk. Don't believe it. Look around you. It isn't the people who put God first that get ahead. It's the people who put money first that have it all. This faith stuff is pure fantasy. You know, God is a nice thought. 
But in the real world, it's every man for himself. And it is not profitable to take this religious stuff too seriously. Submission to God, obedience, humility doesn't cut it. In fact, those who who defy God, who spit in his face, nothing happens. See, God isn't there. Or at least he's not in the game. One of the hard things about God is that if you choose, if you want to not believe in him, he has organized things in this world so that you can make a pretty good case. See, when you give in to the kind of cynicism that that we hear here, truth seems to disappear. All you can see is evidence that God isn't there or that he doesn't care. And God just seems to let it be. He doesn't seem to come and do anything about it to prove that he's there, to prove that he cares. You see, I've been on that path of cynicism, and it is miserable. You become blind to God. You become blind to reality. Your your peace, your satisfaction evaporate. You become miserable, heartless, vicious. You see, any one of us is, is vulnerable to this. Especially when something goes wrong in our lives. I have a friend who was uh, expecting a promotion at work. She had applied for the new position and she was absolutely convinced that she was the best qualified person. Somebody else got the job. And the woman that got the job was a gossip and a backbiter. And in the midst of this, my friend, just an overwhelming sense of frustration. She said, it does no good to follow God. And she was really struggling, really questioning. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been there when your child was was seriously ill. And you look around, here are all these godless families who are, are healthy and happy and whole. Or maybe it was when when your uh, engagement fell through. And, and you look around and, and here are all of these self-indulgent partiers and, and they all seem to find a mate and live happily ever after. Or maybe it was when your business went under. And that guy who never reports his taxes is doing great. But notice what God's people the people that fear God do at times like these. Verse 16, we're told that those that fear God talk to each other. See, at times like these, we need each other. The fiery darts of the enemy are so strong. We need people who love us enough to call us back to reality. And we're hurting, we're confused, we're disappointed, we're feeling sorry for ourselves. That's when we need our brothers and our sisters to wash our feet, to love us, to listen to us, to understand, but at the same time to gently call us back to truth. And what is the truth? The truth is that life is found only in God, that knowing God is life, that the only satisfaction is in Him. The truth is That he is paying attention, he is listening, and he hears. That he wants to be with you during those times of confusion 
and disappointment. See, he's not forgetting. He's not distracted. In fact, uh, he says that he writes all this down in his scroll of remembrance. I think these days he uses a laptop computer. But the point is, the picture is that this stuff isn't escaping him. He's paying attention and he cares. He's keeping a permanent record. Not one of us is overlooked and not one circumstances, one circumstance of your life escapes him. And listen to his words about us. He says, they will be mine. These are the words of a lover. This is what you'd find on a Valentine's Day card. And God really means it. He calls us his treasured possession. You are his treasure. You know, look around you. Of all the neat stuff in this world, you are what matters to him. One day he's going to burn this world and everything in it. But you and I, we are what he takes out. We are what he values. God has his priorities right, fortunately for us. And you are his priority. Told that he treats us tenderly, or excuse me, treats us with compassion. Literally, that means he treats us tenderly. He treats us as special, as a son. Then he says something interesting. He says, and that's how you can tell the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between those who obey God and those who don't. Now, what's he saying here? He's saying that the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, those who obey God and those who don't, is not their bank account. It's not their health. It's not their promotions or their success. The difference is the relationship with God. It is His love. It is His peace. It is the life that is knowing Him. You see, when we go through these enormous disappointments or or loss, God doesn't come and immediately fix everything and see, Christians have no problems. He doesn't even come and explain it to us. He just comes and sits with us, listens to us, and loves us, and tells us how precious we are to Him. And knowing that love, we can have peace, satisfaction in the midst of anything. Having Him, we have all that we need. And see, that's the difference. That's the distinction. In the midst of enormous loss and disappointment, we live. Because God is with us. I've uh, kind of done it to myself again. I uh, get carried away with the first stuff and get excited about that and don't leave myself enough time for what comes next. But I want to stop here and back up and look at the prophecies. Remember, the stuff we've just been talking, the issues that God wanted to take up with us, were bracketed between two prophecies. Let me read these real briefly. It's a lot to read, but I'm going to do it, see how it goes. I'm going to read 3, 1 through 5, and then I'm going to jump over and read 4, 1 through 6, these two prophecies. Uh, 3, 1. See, I will send my messenger who prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? 
Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who bring offerings in righteousness. And the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come near to you for judgment. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers and adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive aliens of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. In chapter 4, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All arrogant and every evildoer will be will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Just a few points that I want to make here. Really, this is the pinnacle of the whole book. These are prophecies of Jesus' first coming. Remember, this is the end of the Old Testament. Jesus hadn't come yet. The, the, uh, the, where it says in 3.1 that he will send his messenger who will prepare the way before him. Well, those, those verses are quoted in Luke about John the Baptist. Next week we're going to begin our study of Luke and look more at the life of Jesus, who is our hope. But in, in in Luke, that was quoted about John the Baptist. He prepared the way for Jesus. And, and the coming of Elijah that's talked about here in, in, in chapter 4, verse 5, that was John the Baptist. Again, those verses are quoted about him. This is speaking of, of our Lord's first coming. And the point here is that the coming of Jesus is the answer to all of the problems of Malachi. Jesus would solve the problem of their wandering hearts. He would come and and, and pay for their sins on the cross. He would put His life in them so that they seek God with their whole heart. He would fulfill their deepest longing, the desire of their heart. You see, their hearts could never be ultimately satisfied because they were waiting for Jesus to come. But He has come. Our heart's deepest longing, our true desire that He talks about there in three one, is Jesus. All hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him. See, we spend so much energy trying to satisfy the, the hunger of our heart, the ache in our heart. We look for satisfaction in so many areas. We look for it in wealth or in sex or in, in comfort or, or, or in fame. But it is a hunger for Him. It is a longing for Him. It is a desire 
for him, and he has come. We don't need to look anyplace else. We don't need to keep getting sucked into these dead ends. We can turn to him when we feel that hunger, that longing, that desire. He is the man we have been looking for. He is the leader that we need. He is the lover of our souls. He's the one who really loves us. The the ultimate expression of the Father's love. And 4.2, he is called the Son of Righteousness with healing in his wings. Some people look at these uh, other verses here in the prophecy talking about you know, burning up all the evildoers and the coming in judgment and the great and terrible day of the Lord and the refiner's fire. And they say, this can't be Jesus' first coming. This has got to be his second coming. His first coming, he was a nice guy. He was gentle. You see, I think they misunderstand his first coming. Jesus, in his first coming, did come to separate the, the, the good from the evil, the righteous from the unrighteous, those that obey God and those that don't. But his way of doing that was not what they expected. He didn't just come and blast the wicked. He came and he preached the truth. He brought the Father's words and the Father's actions. And those who only pretended to love the Father hated him for it. See, Jesus became the dividing line between those who loved God and those who didn't. What people did with Jesus was the true indication of their heart. The problem all along had been people deceiving themselves, trying to deceive others. But what people do with Jesus rips away the facade. It unmasks the heart. Those that truly love God submit to Jesus' lordship. They cling to his cross for cleansing. They follow him because they love him and want to be with him. While those who are only talk, even though they may give lip service to Jesus... They don't submit in obedience. They don't cling to the cross in humility. In reality, they avoid Him. And this stuff about uh, refiner's fire. If you really know Jesus, you know that fire. See, Jesus loves you. And like His Father, He pursues you. He longs to have the life that He has placed in you. Find expression in your daily lives. But for that to happen, he has to burn off a lot of dross. When you dig up some silver ore, it looks like dirt. You can't see your reflection in it anymore. You can see your reflection in dirt. But but, uh, Malachi tells us that Jesus is the refiner and purifier of silver. In those days, what a refiner uh, of silver would do, he would heat the ore to a fierce heat that started to burn away the impurities. And as the impurities were being burned away, he would look into the crucible. And as the last of the impurities burned away, suddenly he could see a, a clear and perfect reflection of himself in the shining silver. See, our Lord is burning away the impurities that cloud his reflection in us. That's what we want. We want to be like Him. We want to love like He loves. We want His life to shine through. But sadly, painfully, our flesh interferes. But our Lord's love is 
a fierce love. It is a strong love. It is a complete enough love that He goes after those things in our lives that destroy us, that rob us of joy and peace, that that keep us from loving like He loves with all of the, the satisfaction and pleasure that comes from that. So if you have Jesus in you, you know that painful, terrible, but wonderful love. Verse 2 of chapter 4 says that He is the burning Son of Righteousness that comes with healing in His wings. And you see, He will relentlessly love us until we go out and leap like calves released from the stall. See, that's a, a picture of freedom. That's a picture of joy. This, this calf jumping around in, in, in the field, just so happy to be alive, delighted with life. See, that's what we want, and that's what He wants for us. That's what He wants to give us. This book of Malachi is a book of God's love. starts with God saying, I love you. And God expresses that love by talking with us about some ways that we've been compromising our relationship with Him. See, He loves us enough to tell us the truth. But then the book ends with the ultimate expression of His love, Jesus Christ. He is the longing of our heart. He is our true desire. And it is His life in us, His work in us, that enables us to respond as lovers should. When the God of the universe says, I love you, our Lord enables us to glory in that and to respond honestly back, I love you. See, this is life. Let's pray.